Hi, I'm Rob Buckingham. Welcome to episode 44 of Digging Deeper. This is a weekly podcast in which we do a deep dive into a theme or subject and discover what the Bible has to say. I've been asked some genuinely insightful questions about prayer. Why are prayers not always answered? To what extent does God intervene? How do we deal with disappointment when our prayers aren't answered? And how do you convey this to a child? Let's find out. I Actually, I disagree with the question because I actually think prayers are always answered. Every prayer is answered, but they're answered in different ways. And so uh, the first way prayers are answered is no. And as I've said to my kids, especially when they were younger, no. No is an answer. And God would say the same thing. Uh, No is an answer. Uh, Sometimes we pray and God will say no, but he answers prayer. And that's a really important answer. Think about Paul and his thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, Paul, he hated this thorn. If you read the whole thing in context with uh, 2 Corinthians 11, you realize the thorn in the flesh was the impact of the persecutions on him. He goes through this whole list of things in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, you know, I've been beaten with rods. I've been, I've been scourged five times. Have you ever seen the passion of the Christ? and you watch the scourging of Jesus uh, the 40 times or 40 minus one, um, and that was awful. Paul experienced that five times. He was beaten with rods. He was shipwrecked. He was stoned, and I don't mean with marijuana. Um, He went through all of this. And so you can imagine the physical impact of all these things on this guy. Now, church tradition tells us that he was quite a slight man. He was small of stature. So a little skinny guy going through all of this stuff. And so the physical impact of those things in his life were a messenger of Satan. It was just constantly buffeting against him. And he got to the point where he said, you know what? I had enough. And I think he's amazing because I would have got to the point of I've had enough way before Paul. And Paul then, he, he sets to prayer and he prays three times. God, take this away from me. God, I've had enough. Take this away from me. Praise it three times. And God says, no. He says, what I will give you is my grace. Um, my grace is sufficient for you. It's all you need. Um, and, and, and then Paul says, uh, okay, so I'm going to rejoice in difficulties and persecutions and hardships because I know that when I'm weak, I am strong. And so that was Paul's thorn in the flesh. God answers his prayer with a no. David also uh, had a vision in his life. He says, God, I want to build you a a beautiful house. I want to build a a temple. And God says, no, not you. He says, you're a man of war. You've got blood on your hands, David. You're not going to build my house. Your son Solomon will do that. And so God answered David's prayer with a no as well. The second way God answers prayer is before you pray. And and I love it when when God answers uh, in this way. Isaiah talks about this, Isaiah 65 and verse 24, before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. And so before they call, I wonder if you've ever had an occasion like that. I certainly have, where I've I've been thinking, oh, I should pray about such and such, but I haven't actually formulated a prayer. And before I've prayed, boom, there's the answer. I'm like, wow, that's really cool. I love it when that happens. Um, why doesn't God give us everything that way? Well, we've had those sort of children in our homes, the children who have always had everything that they've always ever wanted. We've had them in our homes once, and we promise ourselves that we will never, ever invite them back again. God doesn't want us being spoilt brat kids, and so he doesn't always give us everything that we ask for, and he certainly doesn't give it before we pray. 
on every occasion. The third um, way God answers is when you pray. This is an instant answer to prayer. And uh, I had an, a, a, a beautiful example of this on the weekend. I'll, I'll tell you about it in just a moment. But Jeremiah 33 and verse 3 says, Call to me and I will answer you. This is like an overhead thunderstorm. Flash, bang, flash, bang. Prayer, answer. And that's a wonderful thing. I texted a guy last week um, who's moved out to the country with his wife and uh, they're still kind of um, connected with Bayside. So I sent him a text and actually asked him if he wanted to come along to the men's retreat. And he told me he wasn't able to come because they're going to be away at that time. But he also then went on and told me that he's really been battling in his health with the chronic fatigue syndrome for the last six months. And, uh, and I said, would you like me to pray? And he said, well, yes, maybe, maybe you'll have more luck than I will. Anyway, I committed to pray for him, which I did. Uh, over the weekend, and I had a text from him yesterday, which was Monday, so day after the weekend, and he said, well, obviously your prayers are better than better than mine. He said there was one minute over the weekend where he went from sick to completely healed, um, and he's just absolutely rejoicing in that. And, gee, you know what? I wish that was always the case, but it's not. But there are wonderful times when we pray and God answers straight away. And the fourth and final way that God answers prayer is after you pray. And, and I mean after and, and sometimes a long time after we pray. Like I talked about before with um, Abraham and Sarah, you know, God gives them this promise. They'd prayed for a child and God says, yeah, you're going to have one. And they're so excited. And they waited for 13 years, nothing happened. So they thought maybe we need to take this into our own hands. And so Ishmael's the result of that. Uh, and then they waited for another 12 years before Isaac came along. And I think that's often the way that God answers prayer. Uh, he says yes, but not yet. Our eldest daughter, Gigi, asked me when she was eight whether she could drive the car. And I said yes, but not yet. When she was 16, she got her L's and she drove the car for the first time. When she was 18, she got her license. And so we see this uh, all the way through Scripture. I think of the persistent widow in uh, the Gospels. <laughs> she just keeps coming to this guy's house and knocking on the door. And in the end, he just gives up and he gives her what she wants because she is persistent. And I'm not saying that God is uh, an unjust judge. Uh, he certainly is not. But the story is to show us that we should identify uh, with persistent prayer with that little widow because God is a God of process as much as he is the God of power. Uh, I love uh, Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 to 11 in the Amplified Bible. And it brings out the imperfect tense uh, of the ongoing activity. Keep on asking and it will be given you. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking reverently and the door will be open to you. For everyone who keeps on asking receives and he who keeps on seeking finds. And to him who keeps on knocking, the door will be opened to you. Let's get into the second part of this question, and that is to what extent does God intervene? How much of an interventionist is God? And, and my, my simple answer to that question would be rarely. In fact, the word interventionist, if you look at synonyms for interventionist, it means domineering and interfering. Now, I know some people like that. Uh, I know some Christians like that, but that's God's not like that. And if we want to be like Jesus, we won't be like that either, domineering and interfering. God rarely intervenes in the course of nature. Have you noticed? In fact, when God does intervene, we call it a miracle. And a miracle by the very nature uh, of miracles is something that doesn't normally happen. 
but it's when God intervenes in the course of nature. Now, if you're reading through the book of Acts, you think they have miracles, signs and wonders for breakfast, lunch and dinner. But that's not the case because the book of Acts covers about 30 years, the first 30 years of church history. It works out to roughly a year per chapter of the book of Acts. And so when you look at it in that way and you stretch those amazing miracles over about a 30-year period, well, it shows you we're still living in the book of Acts today. If you look back over the last 30 years, you see lots of miracles around the world just in the same way that we saw in the book of Acts. But the fact is that God actually doesn't fiddle with or micromanage the world. Most of the time, God leaves things to work themselves through. And I get disappointed with that at times. I'm like, you look at situations in the world that are horrendous and it's like, God, why don't you intervene? But if God were to intervene, then it would it would set up something bad somewhere else. Like when you fiddle too much with one thing, there's repercussions. A little bit like if you ever watch Bruce Almighty with Jim Carrey, you know, and and he's God, right? And 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 he starts to pray, but then all of this other stuff goes haywire because when God is saying yes to one thing, he might be saying no to another, and so off it goes. It's a fascinating scene. I wonder if you've ever said the the phrase, well, at least God is in control. Can I suggest that if God is in control, then he doesn't appear to be doing a very good job? And I mean that very respectfully. Uh, there are, uh, I think it's a bit of a cliche that we kind of throw out. Well, God's in control. Uh, I don't know. I don't think God does control. There's other cliches that we use as well. And we use these as an attempt to find meaning, either in something awful or when your prayers are not being answered in the way or the time frame that we had in mind. So, well, at least God's in control. Or how about this one? Everything happens for a reason. Ever said that? It's actually wrong. Everything doesn't happen for a reason. Some stuff just happens. God will always work together uh, all of those things for good for those who love him. So he's weaving that tapestry with sometimes some pretty dark threads uh, but everything does not happen for a reason. And uh, then we we throw this cliche out as well. Well, all we can do now is pray, as if prayer is not very much at all. It's a bit of an afterthought. We all know what we mean when we say things like this. It's an encouragement to ourselves more than anything else that things will work out. But sometimes things don't work out. Sometimes the world, our world, remains out of control. And so what should we say about God then? The fact is, if God's in control, well, why is there so much chaos in the world? Why does God allow to have uh, allow evil people to have their way? Why doesn't God prevent or protect us from natural disasters? These are all very good questions that people ask on a regular basis. And the simple answer to these questions is that God is not in control because God does not do control. And I'll elaborate on that a little bit in a moment. The fact is that God actually doesn't usually control the laws of nature. There are instances in Scripture where Jesus, for example, calmed the Sea of Galilee. He, he spoke to the wind and the waves and they obeyed him. And the disciples were blown away. Who is this? that controls the wind and the waves. Even, even the wind and the waves obey Jesus. And, of course, he was demonstrating that he is God in human form. But God doesn't normally speak to the wind. Uh, he normally just lets it blow. He doesn't normally control the waves uh, or the volcanoes or the earthquakes. All of those things are just a natural part of life in this on this planet. And the fact is that without tectonic plates, Without volcanoes and floods and all of these other things, life as we know it on planet Earth could not exist. So these things have to happen. So God doesn't usually control the laws of nature, and he definitely does not control human free will. So he's given us freedom of choice, and he allows us to make those choices even when they're detrimental to ourselves and to other people. It's because of many of these things that wonderful things happen 
in God's world, but it is also these very same things, why awful things happen in this world and they live side by side. And so while God doesn't cause evil, neither does he use control to prevent us from doing wrong. God doesn't control, but he does care. And that's so important. He loves and he cares and he wants to nurture those who have suffered, but he doesn't do control. A couple of examples for you. Think of Jesus' arrest. Jesus allowed the arrest to take place. Uh, he said on one occasion around that time, do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. I think from memory, a legion is 6,000. So 12 times 6,000 is a lot of angels. Um, John 18 and uh, verse 36 is interesting too. Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent, prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. So the kingdom of God is not of this world. If God's kingdom was of this world, then his followers would do control. We would fight, we'd stand up for our own rights, we'd want our way. Sadly, that's sometimes how Christians behave, and it's unchristlike because Jesus doesn't do control. Really important. One of my favorite stories uh, in, in the Gospels is Matthew chapter 20. And the occasion is uh, James and John have talked to mum and they've said, mum, we'd like to be on Jesus' left and right in his kingdom. And so, mum, why don't you go and talk to Jesus? And so in Ma Matthew tells a story in chapter 20 of his Gospel. And so I just imagine this, this little um, this little Jewish woman, she's tiny, but she's tough. And she's got her boys. I got her my boys, one on my left, one on my right. She goes to Jesus and she says, Lord, why don't you permit one of these boys of mine to be on your left-hand side and one to be your right-hand man uh, in your kingdom? And, uh, and Jesus has this fascinating discussion uh, with James and John's little mum, and uh, basically says no <laughs> to their request. Uh, Matthew records, too, that the other disciples were really ticked with James and John. And I love that because it shows the humanity and the argy-bargy that sometimes existed uh, between these 12 guys. Are we surprised that God's church still has a bit of argy-bargy going on between people? We shouldn't be surprised. This is Jesus' response. He says, because he uses this then as a teaching lesson to the disciples later. So he sits them down and he says these words, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. In other words, the way the world works is through control. Control, coercion, coercion uh, authority over, lording it over. Look at these words from Jesus, not so with you. Four little words. In other words, the church, the followers of Jesus are not to do control, coercion, exercising authority over anybody or lording it over them. Not so with you. And then Jesus gives us the alternative, the Christ-like alternative. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Wonderful teaching. Notice that word there, among, not so among you. Leadership in the New Testament is not somebody lording it over them like they're the, you know, the man of, of um, faith and power for the hour, as it were. But the leaders are meant to be among the people. Uh, some of my favourite moments at Bayside is hanging out among the people after a gathering and just spending time with people. That's, that is Christ-like, uh, not lording it over, not controlling people. And so the world's leaders seek to control, but Jesus' followers seek to serve. We want to be like Jesus Christ. 
And so if God doesn't do control, how does God work? I'm so glad you asked that question. The answer is this. God works by consent, not by control. And I'll explain to you what I mean by that. Have you ever noticed that God will never force himself on you? Have you ever noticed that God will not manipulate you? Have you noticed that God is loving and gracious? He's not violent and angry. Even though some preachers revel in that image, I came across this quote ages ago from Mark Driscoll, who was at that particular time the senior pastor of Mars Hills, Hill Church in Seattle. And this is what Mark Driscoll, Driscoll said, and I hope he's changed uh, in his uh, theology, but who would know? He says, in Revelation, Jesus is a prize fighter with a tattoo down his leg, a sword in his hand, and the commitment to make someone bleed. That is a guy I can worship. I cannot worship the hippie diaper halo Christ because I cannot worship a guy I can beat up. That's Mark Driscoll. Um, and, of course, if you are aware of Mark's story, things did not work out well for him uh, at Mars Hill, and a lot of it was because of authoritarianism, uh, the attempts to control people, um, and and having this kind of macho uh, atmosphere where women were seen as second-class citizens. There's a very interesting four-part podcast on it uh, called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. I had to listen to it, and it's actually very insightful and very enlightening, and I'd encourage you to have a listen to Rise and Fall of Mars Hill as you have opportunity. Ma uh, Mark Driscoll is now pioneer he's pioneered another church, uh, this time in, I think, somewhere in Arizona. It's called Trinity Church. I checked out the website today, incidentally, and uh, all the pastors are men. Surprise, surprise. Women have secondary roles, but all the pastors are men. Seems maybe like not much has changed. So what about uh, Mark Driscoll's statement there? I cannot worship a guy I can beat up. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because that is exactly who Jesus is. The guy that people beat up and nailed to a cross. God, as revealed in Jesus, is neither coercive nor controlling, but infinitely close and caring. But he does invite you to willingly respond to the offer of relationship with God. He initiates and we consent. And so God works by consent, not control. Christians, we need to operate in the same way. Christian leaders are not meant to be dictators, authoritarian, telling everybody what to do. We are to provide opportunities to walk with God, to get closer to God, to serve God and one another, but ultimately it has to be by consent, not by control. I put those opportunities out there and then people consent and say, yes, I want to do that. Yes, I want to give him that offering and so on. That's how God operates that's how we should operate as well. When God created the universe, he surrendered control to natural law and human freedom. But it's important to understand as well that God did not abandon creation. There is a, a philosophy out there called deism, which is basically the belief in a God who created the world but has since remained indifferent to it. And so it's like God created and going, yep, that's good, very good, we're going to go and have a holiday now in a different galaxy and left the world to itself. God didn't do that. He didn't abandon his creation. He didn't control the creation. What God actually ultimately did was enter the creation by being born into the human family. The man Jesus experienced all of life's highs and lows. The word became flesh to endure the depth and breadth of the human condition. Think about that for a moment. God born as a vulnerable baby, God as a toddler, God as a little child, and then a teenager, and then the adult Jesus. And so in Jesus, God experienced all of our humanity. Jesus knows your hurts and your heartaches. He knows your 
triumphs and your successes. He knows it all intimately and experientially. He suffered past, but Jesus also suffers because he dwells in you by his spirit in the present. He completely identifies with your agony and your achievements. Jesus is here with you right now. He co-suffers with you. He co-rejoices with you, and he wraps your suffering with his divine love and brings healing to your soul. Here's how the writer to the Hebrews uh, expressed this wonderful, wonderful truth. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That's Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. I think that's amazing truth, and I encourage you to have a read and meditate upon that truth in your own time sometime through the week. But he gives you mercy and grace to help when we've got times of need. Mercy is when God does not give us what we do deserve, And grace is when God does give us what we do deserve. And what we find here is in Jesus, God in human form, participating with our human nature so that we can then participate in divine nature. And so in summary, then, God is not in control, but he is in charge. And that's an important distinction. History is heading somewhere. God is in charge of the steering wheel, if you like. He knows the direction that we're going in, um, into the direction of his eternal kingdom at the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so to what extent does God intervene? Well, he does not usually intervene in the normal course of nature. When he does intervene, we call it a miracle. But God has intervened by being born into the human family, becoming one of us and reconciling us with himself. We hope you're enjoying this Digging Deeper podcast and that it helps you with your understanding of the Bible and how it applies to life. If you're finding it helpful, please let others know about it. One way to do this is by rating and reviewing the podcast on iTunes. That goes a long way to help other people find us. And please like us on Facebook. Now back to Rob. How do we deal with disappointment when our prayers aren't answered? And that's a a really, really good question, Um, although I'd like to reframe it um, a little bit because of what I've shared so far. So the way I'd like to reframe Monica's question is like this. How do we deal with disappointment when God says no or wait in answer to our prayers? And the answer to that is the same way that we deal with no or wait in everyday life. None of us like no and wait as answers to anything. Do we? We want it. We want it now, but no, or yes, but not now. We don't like that very much. So I'm going to give you three very quick ways of how we deal with that in everyday life, and we deal with this uh, with regard to our prayers as well. Number one, suck it up, (laughs) okay? Sorry if that's too blunt, but there are times we just need to suck it up because that's the way life is at the moment. Secondly, we deal with it by processing disappointment. So don't deny it. Be honest with your feelings. Tell God how you feel, uh, what you're going through, your emotions, what you're facing, all of that, and process the disappointment. Sometimes that will take days or weeks or months. Some disappointment might take years like it probably did with uh, Abraham and Sarah. And the third thing is that we grow from it. And more importantly, we grow through it as well as we walk with that disappointment. And so why does God make us wait? I want to suggest um, a few, in fact, four different reasons why God might make us wait. And um, each of them has to do with patience. Uh, which is something that none of us particularly like because the only way you can become more patient is actually by waiting for something. 
You ever thought about that? Because if you prayed and you got the answer to the prayer immediately, you'd never have to wait for anything, so you'd never develop patience. And so parents that give their kids everything they want the moment they ask for it, they're actually doing their kids a major disservice because the child never learns to deal with disappointments and to wait for something and to grow patient as a result of that. And so patience develops maturity uh, or character. And lots of examples. Moses springs to mind at age 40. He was God's man for the hour. He was ready. Here I am. I'm the uh, Messiah for the Jews. I'm their savior. Let me just go in there. They all know who I am. I'm the prince of Egypt. And uh, I'm going to go and um, I, I see some stuff happening here. There's someone mistreating one of my Hebrew brothers. So I'm going to kill the Egyptian. And so what we see in this uh, younger Moses is someone very brash, very sure of himself, very ready to be the Messiah. And God says, no, not yet. And so he sticks him in the desert for 40 years. At the age of 80, God calls him, says, now you're ready. Moses goes, no, I'm not. And in fact, in Exodus, he gives, he gives God five reasons, five excuses why he's chosen the wrong guy. It's funny reading in the early chapters uh, of the book of Exodus. But by the time he was 80, he actually was ready. And, of course, you'll know the rest of the story uh, if you've read Exodus or seen the movie. Uh, my own ministry calling was the same. I, I sensed from the moment I came back to faith in Jesus as a 21-year-old, I wanted to go to Bible college. So after a little while, I quit my radio job in WA and I started making some plans and the Holy Spirit just said to me, no, no, no. And so I went back to my boss at the radio station. I said, oh, I think I've missed my timing. Can I have my job back? And he said, yes. And uh, then a while later, <laughs> I quit again, did the same thing again. The Holy Spirit said, no, went back to my boss. He gave me my job back. He was an incredibly patient man. And um, the the third time, actually, I, 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 I got the time right. And so by this time, I'm in my mid-20s and I got the time right. The calling of God was confirmed by a wonderful uh, old man, 83-year-old guy, uh, got saved during the Welsh revival, Edwin Thomas. And he said to me in his beautiful Welsh accent that he believed God had called me to be a pastor and encouraged me to go to Bible college, And at which point I did. And the rest, of course, is history. But I needed to, I needed to develop maturity and patience and character. Uh, Joseph was the same. You know, at age 17, God gives him these dreams. And rather than using wisdom, of course, as a 17-year-old, he went and blurted all the dreams to his brothers. They hated him. They sold him into slavery. And uh, there he was as a slave and as a prisoner for 13 years. It wasn't until he was age 30 that God promoted him uh, to being basically the prime minister of Egypt. And his dreams came true, but they took 13 years. Uh, Paul became a Christian in Acts chapter 9, but 17 years later, between Acts 9 and Acts, Acts chapter 13, when he finally became uh, on the ministry team of the Antioch Church. So many examples. I'm sure you can think of things in your own life. I remember Gigi coming to me when she was eight, asking if she could drive the car. And I said, yes, you can drive the car, Gigi, but not yet. When she was 16, she got her L's. And of course, now she can drive. The Apostle James really sums this up in James chapter one, verses two to four. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know, you know, the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And then he says, let perseverance finish its work, inferring that we could short-circuit perseverance and not let it finish its work. Let it finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. It's talking about our character. So that's the first reason why God makes us wait. Second reason, patience maximizes blessing. In Acts chapter 3, fascinating story about a, a, a lame man. He'd been lame, uh, I think, from for all of his life, or at least a significant part of his life. 
And every day, his friends used to bring him to the gate of the temple that was called the Beautiful Gate. And they would set him there on his mat and he would beg uh, of people coming in and out of that gate to go in and out of the temple to worship. And so he had been there for years and years and years. I wonder how many times he'd prayed and asked God to heal him. Think about it. Through three and a half years of Jesus' ministry, Jesus was in and out of the temple on a regular basis. The likelihood is Jesus walked past this lame man regularly. Maybe sometime he gave him some money, but he didn't heal him. It wasn't until the resurrection of Jesus and the birth of the church, James and John, one particular afternoon, three o'clock in the afternoon, they're heading in to the temple for the third hour of prayer for the day, and they see this guy and a gift of faith comes on Peter. It says in Acts 3, they locked eyes with each other. The man asked Peter for money, and Peter said, I've left my wallet at home, but how about I give you something else? Took him by the hand, lifted him up in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk, and he did. And that day, thousands of people gathered around that miracle, around that man, and Peter preached the gospel and thousands of people came to faith in Jesus. And so patience maximizes blessing. Jesus could have healed him years before, but he didn't. Peter and James could have healed him on other occasions, but they didn't. God waited for that particular moment being the right moment to maximize blessing, not just for that man, but for thousands of other people. When God does intervene, he doesn't want to just bless me or you. He wants to bless other people around us as well. Number three, patience develops relationship. Think of Job, for example. Uh, the the poetry or the play, actually, what is a many-act play, one of the most ancient books in the Bible, the story of Job. James says this about Job, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy, but it took him probably months or maybe even years to show um, that compassion and mercy to Job. He went through intense suffering. He lost all of his family except for his wife. He lost all of his businesses, all of his possessions, and then finally lost his health. And he had his three so-called comforters that he called miserable because all they did basically, if you summarize everything that those three guys and then the Elihu, the fourth guy who turned up later, Basically, what they said was, Job, you've got sin in your life. That's why you're suffering. And then they said, but if you had enough faith, you wouldn't be suffering. You ever hear those things from Christians today? They're just as wrong today as they were then. And there's a stunning statement right at the end of the book of Job where Job is speaking to God. And in Job 42.5, he says, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you fascinating. So he always believed in God and he, he had a relationship with God, but it was because of what he'd heard. But through his suffering and, and the eventual deliverance and blessing of God, it developed Job's relationship with God. It's one of the weird things about suffering, and you know this from your own experience, is that you look back at it and you go, wow, I, re I really grew through that. I hated it at the time. It was awful. But now I can see what God has done in my life, in my character, and my relationship with God is all the richer uh, because of what I have faced. And then finally, patience recognizes sovereignty. And so it has to be done in God's sovereign time. Think of Abraham and Sarah. You know, God waited until the miracle was absolutely obvious. Abraham was, what was he, 75 when God made that initial promise to him about him and Sarah having their own child. Uh, so Abraham was 75 and, and Sarai was, um, she was barren. She'd never been able to 
conceive a child. 25 years passed before God enabled that miracle to take place. Abraham was 100 and uh, Sarah then was 91. This was a physical impossibility. And yet it happened because of the miracle. Same with Lazarus. You know, Jesus waited for four days um, and until it was going to be an absolute miracle. Uh, Jesus knew he was going to rise from the dead uh, in three days. He didn't want Lazarus to beat him. So he was dead for four days. Have you ever noticed that God doesn't seem like he's in a hurry? That's because he isn't. Have you ever noticed that it takes God a lot, a long time to move suddenly? Have you ever noticed how God seems to come through for you at the last minute? It's the last minute for us, but it wasn't the last minute. It was actually just the right time. God promised to make everything beautiful in his time, not our time. That's what Ecclesiastes 3.11 says. And we have those aha moments or the oh, yeah moments in hindsight. At the time, we don't like it because we're having to wait but then after days, months, sometimes years, and then God finally answers that prayer and we look back and we go, ah, yeah, in God's sovereign time. The great uh, revivalist preacher Charles Spurgeon said, don't give up. Remember that by perseverance, the snail reached the ark. And uh, only needed to be one snail too because they're hermaphrodites. They don't need two sexes there. Uh, patience is waiting, not passively waiting. That is laziness. But to keep going when the going is hard and slow, that is patience. Now, someone asked me last week, Pastor Rob, is that what Hebrews 11 speaks to? And uh, I'd say yes, absolutely. I think Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 11 speak into this whole situation of, of faith and what I would refer to as divine delays in an instant world. You know, we want everything now. We want it popping like popcorn. And, and God says, no, 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 let's just slow this whole thing down. And that's what we see. So uh, in, in chapter 10 of Hebrews, for example, in verse 23, it says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. So, we want the answers to be immediate, but they're not going to be immediate most of the time. Most of the time, the answer to our prayer is yes, but not yet. And so he says here, hold unswervingly to hope. It's a beautiful mental picture. Think about swerving around in your car. Uh, but hold unswervingly to the hope. Just, just keep going in hope. Why? Because God who promised is faithful. Uh, the writer of Hebrews uses Abraham and Sarah as a great example of holding unswervingly to faith. And, and you know, it's, it's interesting there because when you go and read the story about Abraham and Sarah in Genesis, they were anything but unswerving. They, they lied on a couple of occasions. They tried to make the uh, answer happen themselves. They did all sorts of stuff. Um, have a look at Hebrews 11, 11, and by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And yet, you know, when you read the story in, in, in the book of Genesis, she laughed when God made the promise and God said, you laughed. And she said, no, I didn't. And God said, yes, you did. And God won the argument. So she lied. She laughed and then lied about laughing. But here we get into Hebrews and the writer calls her a woman of faith, which says a lot to me um, because I know myself and I know all of my failings and my inferiorities and my inconsistencies, and yet God looks at me and says, you're a man of faith. And same with you. We know ourselves the best, don't we? And sometimes we think that, you know, I'm not a man of faith. I'm not a, a person of faith. Um, but you are because you, you're keeping going and you're not always perfect, but you're still here and you're still following Jesus. And so he calls you a person of faith. And then uh, Hebrews 11 and uh, verse 13, he says all these people, so the people he's been talking about, Enoch, Abel, Noah, Abraham, were still living by faith when they died. 
They did not receive the things promised, so they lived all of their lives by faith and didn't get the answer to their prayers. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. And then he goes on and he talks about, by faith, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joseph, and Rahab. And then the writer runs out of time and he kind of races and summarizes. And he says, what more shall I say? I do not have the time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received their dead, raised back to life again. And then, just in case we were to think that faith in God always produces great victories and amazing answers to prayer, the Hebrew author includes these verses, and I'm so glad they did. Hebrews 11, verses 35 to 40. There were others, the others, who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. The reason they refused to be released was they were being persecuted for their faith. And so they weren't going to deny their faith in God to be released from their torture. Some faced jeers and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. Uh, tradition says that Isaiah the prophet was sawed in two. What a horrible way to go. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins. I'll tell you about that in a moment. They were destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. Look at what the author says. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and holes in the ground. Wandering around in sheepskins and goatskins was a horrible ancient torture where uh, they would wrap the person uh, around the main part of their body in these animal skins and then wet them and then send them out into the desert. And as the sun dried the animal skin, it would get tighter and tighter and, and eventually choke them to death. It was a horrendous way to die. And then he summarizes with these incredible words. He says, these were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. So they spent their whole lives following the Lord, believing in God, and they didn't see the answer to their prayers uh, until after their death. And so what if that was me? What if that was you? Would that be enough? Would Jesus be enough? You know, um, Psalm 103 talks about all of his benefits and talks about healing and deliverance and blessing and all of that kind of thing. And I think the word benefits is really important there because the blessings of God are benefits, but they're not guarantees. Jesus has lived, died, and risen again for us to reconcile us to the Father. And so is that enough? What if God never answers another prayer for us? Is what he's done already enough? I, I will answer that uh, with, a resounding, with a resounding yes. And so how do we deal with disappointment when our prayers aren't answered? The simple answer to that is by focusing on what God will do within us and through us in the waiting time. The end of the, the last question here is how do you convey all of this to a child? How do you convey disappointment to a child? And I would like to say that um, we need to actually um, convey this to a child in exactly the same way that we understand it as adults, but we simplify it a little bit. And so we need to tell our kids well, if you're talking with a child about this, that God answers prayer in all sorts of ways. Sometimes God says no to our prayers and no is an answer. Sometimes he says yes, sometimes he says not yet. And so if you have a child, little kids particularly, ask great questions. And so listen to their questions and don't just answer the questions, but ask good questions in reply. Jesus did that. 
He always or often answered a question by asking a question. And so you could say to your child, uh, does mummy or does daddy always give you what you want straight away? And they'll say, well, no. And, and so, well, why might that be? And see what the child says in answer to that. So maybe God might be a little bit like that too. And so we need to help uh, kids realize that life doesn't always go to plan. But sometimes bad things happen to good people and we don't always get what we want when we want it. By talking about these things, <clears throat> excuse me, we can uh, help our children develop a healthy outlook and a realistic faith. The good news is the Bible is full of stories where not everything works out well, not like Christian books. You buy some Christian books and they just tell you the high points and, uh, and there's no others who, you know, get tortured and go through the tough times. The Bible is intrinsically honest, and I love that. And the Psalms, they provide a wonderful source for genuine faith. In fact, you can divide the Psalms into uh, three main groups. There's 150 Psalms, and you can divide them into these groups. Number one is uh, group one of Psalms. Everything is wonderful. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Group two, everything is not wonderful. I'm struggling like crazy but God is going to rescue me. And then group three, everything is not wonderful. I'm struggling like crazy. I'm praying hard, but God's not listening. In fact, I think he's gone missing. And that's what we need to communicate with our kids. Let's treat, uh, teach our kids to have a really, really honest faith. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Every Wednesday, a new episode of Digging Deeper is released. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with others and rate and review us on iTunes. That goes a long way to help others find us. If you have a question or a topic that you'd like Rob to address, please contact us at Rob Buckingham's Public Figure Facebook page. Join us next week as Pastor Rob answers several questions about the Bible, including why did Paul ignore the account of women who witnessed the resurrection? Paul just mentions the men. Why did he leave the women out? We hope you'll join us then.